So again, Romans chapter 7, uh, verses 1 through 11. Look at God's word with me. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I hope that you've heard all over this passage references to uh, law. We find the word law showing up in just these 11 verses some 13 times. And when Paul is using the word law that frequently, uh, Paul is trying to communicate to us uh, the law as it is uh, formal, so to speak, as it is clear, uh, the law as a message, the law as is understood by all of us. He uses the word law 13 times, but he uses the word written code in verse 6. And he uses the word commandment beginning in verse 8. He uses that word five times. He refers to a specific law in Uh, Verse 2 of our passage, he describes something that's called the law of marriage. And in verse 7, he actually uh, names a commandment. He calls out the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. And so he's teaching about the law. But I want us to hear something. Paul always teaches with utmost clarity. Sometimes we uh, read in Paul uh, difficulties that aren't really there. If we just uh, trace what Paul has said from Romans chapter 5 to where we are this morning, uh, Paul has used uh, very uh, important images that are extremely clear and easy to understand. He's talked, for instance, about Abraham. We know about Abraham. He's talked about Adam. We know about Adam. He's talked about uh, baptism. Uh, Those who are believers in this church, they they know exactly what baptism is. He's talked about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, In in recent memory in our reading from Romans, he's talked about slavery. Everyone knew exactly what slavery was. And here this morning, he's talking about marriage. And he's talking about the sin of coveting. 
You see, Paul's teaching method is all about clarity. He wants us to understand something clearly. And when he mentions law so often, uh, Paul is assuming here that everyone, uh, everyone knows what a legal code is. Yet Paul's not speaking in our passage this morning just to Jews. He's including Jews. But Paul has already said to us in Romans chapter 2 that both Jews and Gentiles understand the law. They understand a legal code. In Romans 2.15, he says that that every human being has a law that's written on their hearts. Everybody knows this terminology of the law and uh, a uh, written code and a commandment. Everyone knows what he's talking about. So our question is this, uh, what is it about the law that Paul wants us to see? Everyone in the audience knows about the law, but what is it about the law in particular that Paul wants us to see? And in one very real sense, Paul wants us to see that the law represents a boundary of some sort, that the law is good, But just as the law makes uh, certain things uh, possible, we can follow the laws of the land to a degree. Uh, Just as the law is good in that way, there is something about the law that sets a boundary. The law says some things are legal by saying other things are not legal. The law, just basically understood, understood the way a child understands the law. The law has a way of ordering things. But the law orders things really only after it first disorders things. What do I mean by that? Well, what does the law tell us what to do and what not to do? The law tells you what to do and what not to do. You don't always agree with the law. So the law orders things. It it presents rules by which all of us uh, live. It it orders and structures society and the society of Rome at this time. But the law does that, creates order, by first disordering, telling me what I can and can't do, regardless of how I feel. And so the law can help me see the problems in others, and the law helps you see the problems in others, how handy the law is. But the law also highlights some of our own problems. I can see your problems helpfully with the lens of the law, but the law also tells me my own problems. And so the law is good, but what Paul is saying here when he uses the word law so frequently is he's talking about an aspect of the law. It's the binding aspect of the law. The word binding shows up in verse 1 of our passage. Now imagine loving and serving God only through the law. I can try to keep God happy with my law-keeping. I know what God wants from me, and I can strive for those things. But even as I strive to do those things that make God happy, I'm really, well, I'm really highlighting my own law-breaking and the things that make God displeased. I think that I can appease him if I try and have a relationship with God that's only through the law. I, I think that I can appease him. I wake up in the morning hoping that I can appease him. If the possibility of appeasing God goes away, then I have nothing at all. But I hope that I can appease him. I think that I can appease him, but I'm never quite sure. And so if I approach God 
from the perspective of a legal code, I'm never going to form a deep intimacy with him. I'll think that I can keep his law, but I won't be sure. And in fact, the opposite is more likely the case. As I try and keep God's law so that I might uh, be respectable in his eyes, I'm just going to see more and more, if I'm honest, really what kind of a lawbreaker I am. And that's true for all of us. If we try and have a relationship with God through a legal code, it's never going to be an intimate relationship. Now, there's more that we can say about that, but on this level, I want us to hear that it's never going to be an intimate relationship. But what if something could happen that would prevent the law from limiting my relationship with God? What if something could happen that would uphold the law, that I would know that God is satisfied and yet at the same time uh, not disrupt my intimacy with God? Now, wouldn't that be something? If I could look to God and know that he is perfectly pleased in me, that I would never doubt that. I would wake up in the morning, not with a desire to, to earn God's favor, but I would wake up in the morning uh, knowing that God is favorably disposed to me because his law, well, it's been perfectly met. Now, if that can happen, then our relationship with God is going to be entirely different. My belonging to God is going to uh, become a reality if I know that God is appeased in law-keeping, but not my law-keeping. And so when Paul is mentioning over and over again in this passage the law, what I want us to have in the back of our minds is that aspect of the law that binds us, uh, that, that, wraps us up, that wraps us up, that actually uh, prevents uh, intimacy with others, intimacy with God. That's what I want us to be thinking about. Because what we find in the first three verses of our passage is Paul introducing us to a woman. And he's introducing us to a woman who actually wants to belong to another. Now again, Paul uses uh, common illustrations from, uh, from life uh, to really be clear, he's not trying to throw us a curveball. He's mentioning marriage. He's certainly talking about marriage with a bit of a slant. But when he, when he talks about marriage, he's talking about something everyone in the Roman church would know. It's just like his reference to a slavery earlier. Everyone knows about marriage. Uh, notice the things that Paul assumes about marriage, that marriage exists. The people in the church at Rome understand what marriage is, uh, that marriage is between a man and a woman. Uh, Paul just uh, assumes this that marriage, uh, the goal of marriage is fidelity such that adultery is wickedness. Right? Paul doesn't, doesn't actually cite the law. He just says everyone acknowledges the fact that adultery is wicked, that marriage is meant to, to be lifelong. Uh, and he says in verse 4, if we skip down just a bit, uh, that marriage is the context for bearing fruit. Uh, I think that the, the reference to bear fruit in verse 4 is odd unless we have the marriage illustration of verses 1 through 3 in the back of our minds. And so, Paul's using an, an illustration that's very common, understood by everyone. But, but there's something odd, isn't there, about his focus on marriage. Paul's focus is that marrying someone else is actually impossible by virtue of the law. Now, Paul's not promoting in this passage adultery. There are some unanswered questions about the 
certainly the motives of this wife. But he's not promoting adultery. He's simply highlighting a principle, a a logical conundrum that everyone in the church at Rome would understand. They get it. If they don't ask too many questions about the personality of the woman, uh, the wife, or the personality of the husband, they actually get the logical conundrum. Marriage is marriage to one person. And something needs to happen if an individual is going to be permitted to marry another. And so he says in verse 2 that there's such a thing as a law of marriage and that that law of marriage has a binding power on both the wife and the husband. He says in verse 1, the law is binding on a person. He says in verse 2, a married woman is bound by law to her husband. So he's talking about law. He's using the illustration of marriage, but he has a very specific purpose. He wants to show that binding power of the law. And so Paul says that she cannot live with another. She cannot belong to another. Now, Paul actually, he doesn't disagree that marriage presents to the husband and wife enormous gratification. Paul is going to uh, remind us of Genesis 2.24 and Ephesians chapter 5 when he says that uh, husband and wife become one flesh. Uh, Paul has so many positive things about, uh, uh, to say about the gratification that comes for, from husband and wife. But here, in this passage, uh, he wants us to see that there are aspects of marriage, you might call them logical necessities, that promote this gratification of marriage by binding the husband and binding the wife. And so in a very strange way, what Paul is doing is he's using this illustration of marriage that everyone understands, everyone gets, And he's focusing on an aspect of marriage that might be a little bit uncomfortable, but still very, very clear. And he says that in a strange way, the law of marriage prevents a certain kind of relationship. It prevents adultery. It prevents this wife having a relationship with another man. All of that is true. An awkward conversation, to be sure. But Paul is presenting, as I said, a model that all of us get. Married people and single people would nod that, yes, I get what you're saying, Paul. It's a little bit awkward because adultery is wickedness. It's a little bit awkward because we want all of our married couples here in the church to stay married. But everyone can nod in the Roman church. Yes. Yeah, we get it. There's a a binding power of the law that prevents a kind of relationship. But Paul prepares us that he might tell us this. What is it that removes this binding aspect of the law that prevents a woman from having a relationship with someone who is another? What's going to remove that binding aspect of the law? Everyone in the church at Rome would know the answer. Everyone. They would... Paul could ask, what frees up the woman to belong to another? And the response from everyone would be, well, death would do it. Death would do it. If if her husband dies, then she is freed up to have a relationship with another. Regardless of the personality of of this woman, or the personality of the man who has just died, what Paul is saying makes perfect sense. 
We have to see through the practical difficulties of this particular illustration. Uh, how did this guy die? Wouldn't we like to know, right? There's a sense in which Paul is asking us to agree with something, but we might say, well, now, wait a minute. Did she kill her husband, right? There's problems with that. Did her dad kill the husband? Did a cousin kill the husband? We kind of want to know who killed the husband. Um, and we also might ask, well, why does the woman want to be with another man? And if she wants to be with another man, why does she want to be with the first husband in the first place? Okay, there's other questions, yes? They're in your head. Paul doesn't answer them, and so C.S. Lewis would say the best way to understand the Bible is to ask of the Bible the right questions. Paul doesn't answer those questions. Those aren't the questions we're to be asking of this passage. Paul's talking about a principle, a principle, the law of marriage. And, and this principle, this law of marriage, actually prevents the woman from belonging to another. And all of us understand that. The law is, in this instance, a hindrance to her belonging to another. And the only solution to this hindrance is actually death. When the husband dies, the law remains good. Nothing changes with the law. The law remains good. But when the husband dies, belonging to another can finally happen. Now, maybe that's the question that Paul is ask, asking us to consider. What will it take for the woman to belong to another? The woman who wanted to belong to another but was prevented by the law after death, well, now she can belong to another. And she can belong to another, to another in such a way that the law isn't damaged. It just took one thing. Death. Now, little theologians, you should be able to understand this perfectly. It is very true that when a husband dies, the woman is then free to marry another. Only then can she belong to another. The binding power of the law is released, and she can belong to another. By the Holy Spirit, Paul is such an eloquent teacher, but he moves on. He goes from verses 1 through 3 to verses 4 through 6. And so whereas 1 through 3 speak uh, hypothetically about a woman wanting to belong to another, I don't believe that there is a woman in the church that he's referring to. I believe 1 through 3 really is uh, hypothetical. But verses 4 through 6 is actually a historical reference for every, every Christian life. So 1 through 3 is hypothetical, but verses 4 through 6, it's actually a description of every Christian life. You know, we could uh, read the very beginning, uh, verse 1, uh, likewise, my brothers. I'm sorry, is it verse 1 or it's verse 4? The word likewise. Likewise, my brothers, it's verse 4. So when we, when we read the word likewise, we're supposed to understand something in verses 4 through 6 that connect to verses 1 through 3. And what we're understanding is what it means for a Christian who was once married to another to belong to someone else. Paul says that we are, we're like that woman. We had a different husband. We, we actually know nothing of the first husband of verses 1 through 3, but our first husband we know something about. Look what Paul says in verse 5. Every Christian, everyone who professes faith in Jesus Christ, you actually had another husband. And Paul in verse 5 says that other husband was the flesh. You see what he says there? We were living in the flesh. Now, Paul doesn't describe the woman's life with her first husband. 
But here, he says four things about our life with our first husband, four things about uh, marriage to flesh, as odd an expression as that is. The first thing that Paul wants us to understand about uh, this marriage to a husband named flesh is that our former marriage to flesh was one filled with passion. He says that passions in this marriage were aroused by the law. And to understand this, we have to reflect upon Romans chapter 1, where we learn that God gave this, uh, that God, uh, gave this marriage, this marriage to flesh, uh, gave it up to dishonorable passions, Romans 1.26. The kind of marriage that we as Christians lived before being married to Jesus was a marriage that was filled with passion, passion for dishonorable uh, passions, Romans 1.26. A marriage to flesh which did not see fit to acknowledge God. And so God gave us up to do what ought not to be done. And Paul also says in Romans 1, uh, they know God's righteous decree. They know God's law that those who practice such things deserve to die. But they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. You see, marriage to flesh, the first thing Paul is saying, well, it it apparently was a very passionate marriage, and it was passionate about law-breaking. This is a marriage that hates God's law. This is a marriage that is aroused by the law because breaking that law feeds flesh. It makes the marriage passionate. That's what marriage to flesh looks like. It is a marriage of passion. Not only is it a marriage to, of passion, it's also a marriage that produced offspring. Look at verse 5. It's a marriage that bore fruit for death. It's, it's a marriage that actually uh, duplicates itself in such a way uh, that this marriage, it yields something. And marriage to flesh yields death. So we might say that it is a uh, marriage with death as the object. But the person married to flesh doesn't think that way. But Paul says that's what it is. Marriage to flesh is filled with passion. Marriage to flesh has the object of producing offspring for death. And he says in verse 6 something that's very important, that marriage to flesh is a marriage of captivity. He says this marriage uh, is, uh, or he says that the law of marriage that keeps us marriage to, married to flesh actually holds us captive. Verse 6. And so think about the woman uh, who was married to the first husband. Uh, the woman married to that first husband, the law prevented marriage to another. Uh, there was a law that, in a sense, uh, kept the married, uh, kept the woman uh, captive to her first husband. She couldn't marry another because of the law. And when we are married to the flesh, that marriage keeps us captive, prevents us from marrying another. Something about that marriage to flesh that holds us in captivity. That's the third thing. And the fourth thing is this. That marriage to flesh is a marriage that's entirely without intimacy. Notice at the very end of verse 6 what Paul says. He says that it was a marriage of the written code. The, the marriage of the flesh is a marriage of the written code. Now this is tricky here Paul seems to be saying that this marriage with flesh didn't allow a uh, 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 relationship with God unless it was some kind of impersonal, written code kind of relationship with God. Verses 1 through 3, there is a woman who is married to a man. 
And in verses 4 through 6, Paul is saying that every Christian can be understood as someone who used to be married to the flesh. And he describes that uh, marriage to flesh in four ways. He says that it was passionate. Uh, he says that it produced offspring, death. He says that it, it held uh, the parties captive. And he said that it was completely without intimacy to God. But there you have it, the marriage to that first husband, a marriage to flesh. Now, it's important for us to read these verses this way because Paul is addressing a congregation for whom most of them, if not all of them, were converted later in life. Now you see, those of us who were converted as adults, we understand something about this having been married to flesh part. There's something about marriage to flesh that makes us or made us happy. And those of us who were converted late in life can recall to mind what this marriage to flesh was like. It was the kind of life in which there was no Jesus to, uh, to speak to. There was no uh, Jesus to compete with our affections. Our affections were uh, untethered to Jesus and tethered to self. There's something about that life of being married to flesh that just made sense. It felt in many ways liberating. It felt empowering. It felt superior. In fact, uh, there is a sense in which uh, you can be married to flesh and, and still feel connected to the divine. Very spiritual. Of course, when you're married to the flesh, you're calling all the, sh all the shots, right? When you're married to the flesh, you believe that you're in control. We made it work. Paul says that we were held captive, but we didn't believe it at the time. It just made sense. Now, it may be that this is a little too personal to, to, to talk about life before Jesus, but some of us know that very well. But it's also important for us to understand that Paul says that this is really no marriage at all. Marriage to flesh is marriage to self. And what we need to understand is that if you're here today as a non-Christian, I, I want you to hear very, very clearly that the, that the Bible is serious about a relationship with your flesh that refuses to have a relationship with Jesus. The Bible everywhere describes life without Christ as a deep marriage with your own passions, with your own drives, with your own impulses. Verses 4 through 6, they're not unusual in the Bible. This is how the Bible understands those who refuse to profess faith in Jesus Christ. It is a marriage to self. Now, once we understand that, we can go on. Because Paul describes one and only one way that is out of this malaise. Only one way for the Christian to have a spouse other than flesh. There's only one way to belong to a better spouse. Do you hear what must happen? You know it from the illustration in verses 1 through 3. What must happen for me to belong to a better spouse? Well, that spouse must die. 
That marriage partner must be killed. The the flesh, it has to be dealt with. When the woman's first husband died, the entire application of the law altered so that she was free to marry the second husband. Paul is saying, your first husband, flesh, it has been killed. It's done with. And it's done with by his death. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, he removed that husband's power Verses 4 through 6 are an address to all of those who profess faith in Jesus Christ. And he's describing to them what has happened for their salvation. When Jesus died on the cross, he removed the former husband's power. Paul says in verse 6 that we as Christians are released from the law. Now this is complex to be sure. In our marriage to the flesh, we assume that we can stand before God. How dare God judge me? I know what I'm doing. I know that he must love me. I'm not as bad as other people around me. That is a lie of the flesh. Imagine, I ask again, as I did at the beginning of the sermon, imagine loving and serving God just through law-keeping. I try to keep God happy but I'm really only highlighting my law-breaking. I think that I can appease him, but I'm never really sure that I have. And this will never permit lasting, deep intimacy. You know, some of us know what what it was like growing up with unappeasable parents. Some of us know what it's like uh, working in a work setting with uh, unappeasable supervisors. We try as hard as we can but we never meet their expectations. We try harder and harder and harder, and we never meet their expectations. So we can give up, we can look elsewhere, we can assume it's just not supposed to be an intimate relationship, whatever. But I think many of us know that feeling. That's not how we're meant to have a relationship with God. Working for his affection and always wondering if we have it. But what if something could happen that would prevent the law from uh, limiting your relationship with God? What if something could happen that would uphold the law, that would truly appease God? What if someone could absolutely satisfy every demand of God such that no one would ever say, you have not appeased him? Well, then you could serve God in a whole new way, couldn't you? And that's what verse 6 promises. You could serve him in a whole new way. That's what, it tru- that's what it means to truly belong to your spouse. He does everything, everything. And the law is kept perfect. So we've seen then a woman who wants to belong to another, but there's a binding implication in the law of marriage. And we have seen what it looks like for a Christian to belong to Jesus through what Jesus has done. Uh, Now what happens? In this passage in verses 7 through 11, uh, Paul shares in a sense his own marriage to flesh. You see, Paul wants to defend the law. Uh, Look, in verse 8, he mentions a commandment. Law and commandment are going to appear nine times. Uh, The commandment against adultery, Paul wants us to know, is a good commandment. Adultery is wickedness. God's law that reveals our guilt of living married to flesh, that's actually a good law. But here's where Paul's taking us. Paul wants us to see that the law is not sin. 
He says in verse 12, and we'll look at this next week, he says that uh, the law is holy and righteous and good. But he's going to use an illustration in verses 7 through 11 uh, that describe to us uh, his own life, his own marriage to the flesh. It's almost as if when we look at verse 7, uh, we're able to peer into the confession of faith from our brother Paul. Uh, the first question would be this, is Paul actually here in 7 through 11 speaking about himself? And it seems like he is. And he seems to be using his own life as a backdrop of the goodness of the law. You know, not all scholars agree that verses 7 through 11 are autobiographical. Some believe that this, uh, like verses 1 through 3, is another hypothetical illustration. But Paul seems to me to be describing here his own experience as a Jew, uh, coming to understand his own failure to keep the law. And so it's about himself. The next question would be, well, is Paul speaking about his conversion or is he speaking about his regular Christian life? Now, this is, I understand, trickier, but I, I think that what Paul is talking about in verses 7 through 11 is that initial breakup with the first spouse, the breakup with the marriage to flesh. You see in this passage that Paul uses a lot of past tense verbs. He's describing something that has happened. But later, if you, if you fast forward to verse 14, uh, what we're going to find is Paul using a lot of present tense verbs. And so when Paul is talking about his life in verses 14 onward, he's talking about uh, what the Christian life is like, struggling with sin, and he uses himself as, as an example. But here, he seems to be reflecting upon what would seem to be his first few months surrounding his conversion. This was his experience in Damascus in Galatians 1 and Acts chapter 9 and elsewhere in Scripture. So it is Paul, it is autobiographical, and he seems to be talking about uh, something that happened in relation to his conversion. What Paul wants us to see is what marriage to the flesh is like. And so the marriage motif is actually really important for verses 7 through 11. Paul gives us a few reasons to uh, love the law. Remember, the law is holy and righteous and good. Why, Paul? Why is it good? And he gives us several reasons to love the law. Look what he says, first of all. He says that the law uh, reveals the existence of sin. Verse 7, if it has not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So the law, it reveals the existence of sin. It served Paul by telling him what sin is like. The law tells him what sin is. Sin is, after all, a transgression of the law. And so the law calls out Paul's covetousness. It's hard to know why Paul would mention this particular sin, the last of the Ten Commandments. Perhaps Paul struggled with this sin inordinately. Uh, it is a sin that is deep. It has to do uh, with our uh, inmost desires. It, it might be coveting things or status of others, and that may be the cue right there that Paul had coveted the status of other Jews in his own career. We don't know what it is. But there's something about covetousness that Paul knows a thing or two about. But the first thing that law do, does is it, is it reveals the existence of sin. The second thing it does is it reveals the liveliness of sin. Look at verse 8. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. Verse 9. When the commandment came, sin came alive. It's almost like the, the, uh, the law is a stick that pokes an animal you're not sure if it's dead or alive 
And law, it's that sin, and it pokes the animal. It rouses the animal to life. Uh, it gives us an awareness of, uh, of our own sinfulness. And so the law actually calls out the existence of sin, but it, but it also uh, calls out the liveliness of sin. And then finally, lastly, the law does this. The law reveals the motive of sin. Look at verse 11. Sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Sin is so intertwined with our existence uh, that it preys upon us. Uh, Sin actually uh, lives within us in such a way that it's looking for an opportunity to leap upon us. Uh, Something about the criminality of covetousness, well, it's just exciting and sin knows no end. It keeps clawing at us. Its motive is law-breaking, law-breaking, law-breaking. Now, this is pretty helpful. Hard to hear, but it's pretty helpful. Paul says that the law, which is holy, righteous, and good, here are three things the law is great at. It reveals the existence of sin, it reveals the liveliness of sin, and it reveals the motive of sin. But the greatest purpose of the law is this. The law actually draws Paul to Jesus Christ. How will I know my need for a mediator, my need for a better spouse, unless I see my own slavery to another marriage arrangement? That's the, that's the greatest thing that the law does. The law tells us that we need Jesus. The law tells us that the spouse that we have called flesh, well, it's a wily spouse. The law points her out so Paul uses his own life as a great example Uh, they know Paul as a believer as someone who has been united to Jesus Christ and Paul says look this is this is what's happened to me the law has served noble purposes in driving me to my need for Jesus and Paul knows that through the death of Jesus his covetousness now serves a different purpose Now when he looks at his life, his covetousness is is different. It continues to bother him, no doubt. He's going to talk about uh, the sin that pesters him later on in chapter 7. Covetousness, it continues to bother him, but it doesn't define him. He's not married to covetousness. He is able to confess that sin because uh, Jesus himself never coveted at all. Jesus is God's own perfect righteousness. And Paul knows that a Christian is united to a better spouse. And when God looks at Paul, God doesn't see Paul's covetousness, not his struggle, nor even his victories with covetousness. When God looks to Paul, he sees Paul's perfect spouse, Jesus And so when Jesus died on the cross, he actually died for Paul's covetousness. And he bears a different relationship to his sin because of what his perfect spouse has done. Now, now, given what Paul has said, introducing marriage, talking about the Christian life in terms of having uh, a better spouse, and then using his own life as an example of how his sins uh, no longer define and crush him because of the better spouse. Now, imagine loving and serving God through the law. Try it. 
Try to keep God happy with your law-keeping. You're just shining forth your law-breaking. You think you can appease him. You're never sure. You'll never have a deep intimacy with him. And then ask again, what if something could happen that would prevent the law from limiting my relationship with God? What if something could happen that would uphold the law and not disrupt intimacy with God? Well, that's what Paul's told us here. The work of Jesus actually reorders our relationship with the law so that finally intimacy with God can be had and belonging to God can become a reality. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking us through this lens of the law that we would understand, uh, not a possibility, but for the Christian, what we already have. Now the next question becomes, that's well and good, Paul. And the relationship that I have with God is a relationship of true belonging, true and deep intimacy. The law's demands have been met. But how do I live when I continue to struggle with this flesh that I have divorced from? That flesh, it's still there. And that's what Paul is going to talk about next. But may we never think as Christians that that flesh impacts us now in the same way that it did before we were believers. That marriage is not our marriage. The flesh is there. You feel it. The law remains good. But that marriage, well, that marriage died on the cross. So these are words to encourage us as Christians. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've done all things necessary to unite us to yourself. You've done all things necessary that our relationship would be one of reconciliation. Father, we thank you for the perfect work of our Redeemer and the price that he paid for our salvation. Would you, Father, we beg, would you please train our hearts to under understand ourselves as we really are, those who are not married to flesh any longer, but married to Christ Jesus, our perfect spouse, in whose name we pray. Amen.